Everything is wonderful Being here is heavenly Every single day she says Everything is free I used to be so careless As if I couldn't care less Did I have to make this mess When I was Mary's friend Suddenly the heavens Hey everybody, welcome back to The Hustle. It's John Lamoureux. Okay, as promised, uh, first of all, before I get into it, who out there does not absolutely love this song? Is this not one of the most universally beloved and welcome and endearing hit songs ever recorded? I think so. I don't know anyone that doesn't think this song is wonderful. Well, it is Mary's Prayer by the band Danny Wilson. And Danny Wilson's frontman is Gary Clark, and that is our guest this week. So this was really the only hit for Danny Wilson. In the States, it reached number 23. I think it was more popular in other parts of the world. It was really tied into that sort of sophista-pop movement that was going on in 1987. We talk about that in here. The band didn't last very long, unfortunately. They put out one more album in 1989, Bebop Mop Top, which I didn't even know existed until recently. And then that was kind of it. But Gary has always remained in the game, oftentimes sort of on the fringes and oftentimes doing things you probably didn't know. So after Danny Wilson, he starts a couple other bands. One's called Transistor. One is called King L. These never really cross over, you know, on the other side of the pond, but they keep him in the business. That starts turning into writing songs for other people. He works with Natalie Imbruglia, has a hit there. Wrong Impression, love that song. And then, honestly, he starts writing these super hit hit songs that are hits in other parts of the world. For people I've never really heard of, for the most part. They're very poppy, but they're very successful. And so this keeps him in the game for years. Well, eventually he strikes up a partnership with director John Carney. John Carney directed Once, one of the greatest music movies ever. And he directed Sing Street, which if you have not seen seen Sing Street, which came out three years ago, I think, three or four, one of the most beloved, one of the greatest movies ever, especially about music. Gary wrote all of the original songs for that movie. So we talk about this. In fact, he and John are partnering on a, very, on a new project, music-related, right now. He talks about it at the beginning of this interview. So you would have had no idea that the guy behind this wonderful tune, Mary's Prayer, has been at it for over 30 years, being very successful, just probably in ways that you didn't know because they were very behind the scenes. Anyway, I love him. I love his pop sensibility. He's written so many great songs that mattered to me, and I thought his story would be really fascinating to share. He called me from his home in Dundee, Scotland. Oh, by the way, I got to say, just you guys all know this. He mentions in here what an influence Daryl Hall was to him vocal as a vocalist. That warmed my heart. Anyway, here's Gary. What motivated the move back to Scotland? Well, it was a few things. The, the kind of immediate thing was we were renting in Los Angeles, and mm. 
the landlord basically asked us to get out and gave us six weeks and I had a studio and stuff to move and it was just kind of like the final straw because we'd had to move about three or four times and we didn't want to sell our place in London but we didn't want to move back to London and we just started looking at options and one of them was Nashville and then the other one was Scotland yeah. <laughs> Scotland won yeah so. Nashville's kind of a hot I mean you know this it's a hot spot right now that's kind of the new LA for musicians it anyway. is it really yeah. is yeah, yeah, and it's got a lot more pop than it used to be. So yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Now we um we talked about doing this a few a couple of months ago, but you had a a pretty cool project you were working on with John Carney, who was for anyone who doesn't know, also the director of Sing Street and Once. And I'm going to ask you more about Sing Street later on. But tell us about this new project if you can. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, John is basically the executive director, writer, producer of a new Amazon show called Modern Love, which is an eight-part series. Uh, it's eight short films, really. Mm. They're all about half an hour long, and they've all got the feature music quite heavily. And some, and actually, there's in each episode, there's at least one unreleased song by different artists, and I even sing some of them, so really? it's just... Yeah, it's been uh, it's been uh, we literally just finished, and when John called me to ask me about it, he kind of said, you know, it'll just be like you know, you write a couple of songs, and then we'll we'll have some fun in the studio, and then we'll you know maybe make bits of score out of some of the songs, and but it was actually <laughs> full on six months. I didn't leave the studio. <laughs> it's just like, wow. Well, so the songs that you're talking about that are unreleased are they uh, are they fictitious songs that relate to the characters in the show or are they actual songs from people we would know? Well, we ha it's kind of a mixture. We have some brand new artists. We have some artists that you will have heard of before. Um, the Divine Comedy did a song. Oh, Regina sure. Spector did a song. But basically, we would send them the script and then discuss kind of what was needed, where it, where the song might happen. And, you know, and they'd speak to the directors and see if the directors had any thoughts. And in some cases, I wrote specific songs for specific scenes. And in some cases, I sing them. And in other cases, um, there's a song that I did called Circus in episode one that Narina Palo sang. And it's oh. a beautiful version. So. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, when yeah, lots of different. It's kind of different. Yeah. Yeah. When is this going to be out? Uh, I believe it's October. It's okay. Definitely the, the latter oh. part of this year. Oh, that sounds great. John always does quality work. I love everything he, everything visually he puts his hands on is so special. You know, Once and I, Sing Street are two of my favorite movies ever. I, I agree. I couldn't yeah. agree more. No, I yeah. mean, I, and it's just a joy to work for him because he's one of the, he understands music and film and film and music in the way that they interact with one another in an yeah. incredible way. So, yeah, you very can tell. Fortunate. His love and passion for it is so obvious up on the screen. You know, you feel yeah, it too. It's definitely. infectious. I love it. Um, okay, I want to ask you more about Sing Street, but that's a whole other conversation. So let's kind of go back yeah. to the beginning a little bit. I mean, People, your calling card probably for the rest of your life is going to be Mary's Prayer. And uh, <laughs> I'm curious, tell us, I mean, tell us about the actual creation of that song. Where did the germ of the idea come from? 
How long had you been sitting right. on it? Did you write it on a guitar versus a piano? Tell us about the story, the creation of that song. A friend of mine, I, I was living in basically in a squat in hmm. London. I was about 19 or 20. And I didn't have, I never had owned a keyboard of any kind. And a really good friend of mine, Ali Thompson, who's a songwriter, used to be a recording artist. He came around one day and he said, I've just got a new synth. Do you want to borrow my old one? And it was a Juno 60, which was one of the first um, Roland synths that you could store sounds on. And so I just switched it on, and the first sound that came up was kind of like the just a chang uh-huh. sound, you know. And I didn't play very well, so I just kind of started hitting the white keys. And very quickly, the, the chords to the verse, I found them. And they're they're just all white notes, you know. Mm-hmm. And when I got those chords, I just I just immediately got the, the melody. And also some of the lyrics as well for the first verse just kind of came. And I, I loved it, and I thought, oh, that, that could be a great song. And I just kept trying different choruses, and it was probably a year. Really? That I, yeah, it took ages to write the chorus, and it was the key to unlocking it was kind of, it was two things actually. One thing was to get off the keyboard, and mm-hmm. I picked up a guitar, uh-huh. and the other thing was, and I've said this to a few people and they don't get it, but you you might get it, and that is that I loved the song Karma Chameleon, by Culture Club. Sure. And. The thing that I loved about it was this kind of sort of mixture of sadness and happiness, which is really quite difficult to uh-huh. achieve. But it, it it has a major key kind of feel to it, and this beautiful sort of soul, soulful vocal. And that was kind of, it. Doesn't I wasn't copying that song. It was just the feeling of it that I really loved, and that kind of unlocked the chorus for me. That and that and playing it on the guitar. You know. Wow. So. Wow. And, now uh, is I mean is is it a uh... Are you Catholic? Because there's sort of a you know a Catholic I, sort of spirit to it. I was brought up in a Catholic school. Basically, my grandparents were Irish Catholic. My mum and dad were kind of they wanted us to go to church to please the grandparents, but they sure. never really went. But I was at a Catholic school and all the stuff that comes with that. So I was an altar boy and all that stuff. And, yeah. Um, yeah, so all of that went in. And when I got around at the age of 14, 15, I started to question all of that spirituality yeah. and church and whatnot. But the language kind of I always kind of stayed with me because I'd, yeah. I'd grown up listening to those hymns and things. Right. And I went through a little period, and Mary's Prayer was probably the last song of that period, of kind of using kind of imagery from the, the hymns and things, but in a kind of inappropriate way talking about sex or whatever right. you know right. trying to get right. my own back yeah yeah <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, mary's prayer was probably the last of those you know and it's not okay. overly religious but you know. no but there's you know the 10 hail marys there's a slight you know it touches on kind of heavenly exactly, yeah. topics or whatever i just wondered where you're where you were coming from you know it's such a beloved song it just it and i gotta say it's one of these songs that Everyone knows, but I'm not sure everyone, one, knows what it's called, and two, knows who sings it. Do you find that? That's really true. You know? Yes, absolutely. I was telling can't, my wife. can't disagree with that at all. <laughs> yeah, I was telling my wife. She was like, who are you talking to? I said, well, Gary Clark from the band Danny Wilson. Who's that? 
well, they sing Mary's prayer. Yeah. What was that? And then I play that song. She's like, I, her eyes light up. I love this song. And that's, I think, a common <laughs> reaction to it from a lot of people, you know? It's very true. I don't think we did ourselves any favors by calling the band after a fictional character, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I've always wondered that too. A lot of people. Yeah, it's confusing, you know, and uh, and I mean, how bummed are you that Gary Clark Jr. is now one of the greatest, you know, blues guitarists out there? So you you're not even what pops up first when people want to Google Gary Clark anymore, you know? I know it's hilarious, and I think I've got a few of his Twitter followers and stuff as well. So I'm sure you. <laughs> they keep tagging Scottish... me in blues festivals and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that's so true. I'll take any Twitter followers I can get. You know. That's right. That's right. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Um, you know, but one I... day, one day, my uh, a couple of, about a, two years ago or something, I, my publisher at the time had um, taken on a, a new intern, hmm. and the intern called up my wife Alison who's the manager oh no it was an email basically saying can you please uh, furnish us with your husband's tour dates in North America because <laughs> we need to get the songs and can we give a, get a set list because we need to get the songs uh, registered <laughs> she sent him a Classic. picture of Gary Clark Jr. Yeah. and a picture of me right. <laughs> wrong guy wrong guy yeah. that is so great I'm sure it'll happen again yeah yeah, it's just one of those songs that makes people happy. It's so beautiful. In fact, I remember it was a year or two ago, maybe longer. Um, I listened to the BBC's Desert Island Discs, and the actor oh, yeah. Tim Timothy Spall was on there. And if anyone doesn't know who that is, yeah. if you Google him, you'll recognize his face immediately. And um, yeah. Mary's Prayer was one of his picks. And he, I remember him saying, this is kind of my kids and I's song. This is the song that you know, makes us, reminds us that we love each other. And it was the one that he saved from the waves at the end. And I just thought that's oh, so true. This is that song that just makes people, you know, perk up and be happier. And it's just beautiful. You know, you've put some good stuff in the world. Thank you. Well, I mean, sure. I think that was, I was kind of, um, it's interesting you should say that because it's, it, I guess it's always been something that I've just believed in. And, and, mm. and in a way, I think Sing Street has that same quality, you know? It sure does. It's like you feel that you're, you're, you're putting good energy into the world. You know? Yeah. yeah. I, 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 there's not enough of it around. Yeah, yeah, you did it. <laughs> so when the, you know, the band comes out and the album comes out and people are a little confused what Danny Wilson is, if it's a person or a band or whatever, but that song does really well, does the label... Um, I'm, I don't even know. What was the second single off of that album in the States? I'm not sure. I think it might have been uh, Dad I Used to Know. Just for a second, I recognize the girl. 
Uh, but because we were at the other side of the world, by that time, Mary's Prayer was a hit in the UK and Europe after the States. The States kind of went uh, first. Okay. We had other hits here, not as big as Mary's Prayer, mm -hmm. but so at the time it didn't feel like it was confusing people because, you know, we were on the radio and stuff. It's only later, I think, that I've kind of realized that that um, definitely confused people. Really? Okay. Yeah. It, uh, I mean, it was just kind of a one and done. It felt like on my, you know, I'm 14 years old, but I'm paying attention to pop music at that time, and I don't ever hear anything else from Danny Wilson ever that I know of. You know, I, it wasn't until yeah. much later that I had to kind of do some digging. It sounds like you were maybe a little oblivious to that. Did you ever feel as though your label dropped the ball or didn't do enough for you? Or were you so busy touring and doing your thing that you weren't really paying attention? It's hard to remember now, to be honest. And I don't think we were, anybody was really mad at Virgin. But certainly Virgin in the UK really believed in the band and kind of kept going. But there was kind of internal troubles in the band had sort of started to kick in by around oh. the touring of the second album. And the, the second album... I don't. I don't think it went out in the U.S. I didn't even know it existed until just a little while ago. <laughs> I didn't know. It was yeah, out I there. mean, if it went, if it went out, yeah. it was literally with some no fanfare. But I actually did okay here, and there was a actually it's kind of a wacky story. But the the people who ran Virgin America at the time, Jordan Harris and Jeff Aroff came to hear what we were up to on the second album before it was released. We were still working on it. And I had written this song in about... I actually wrote it in the head in about two and a half seconds. And it was called Second Summer of Love. We recorded it, and it was probably two minutes long, or a minute and fifty, or something. And um, they both said, "This is your single. This should mm -hmm. be. You, you need to make this a radio length, you know." Mm -hmm. And we were like, "What's radio length?" Um, so they said, well, <laughs> it has to be at least whatever it was, two minutes thirty or something. So mm -hmm. um, we added a, I added a bridge or middle eight, as we call them here, mm -hmm. and a harmonica solo, <laughs> and doubled the chorus at the end, and, and all that. 
But the, the irony of it was, I mean, it was a hit here, but the irony of it was that it, it was never released in the States. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that. It's a great song, and that's a really good album, too. Um, it doesn't quite, it doesn't have the Mary's Prayer kind of, you know, Trojan horse that's going to blow everyone away, but it is a strong enough album. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember it ever making a dent over here. Um, no, I don't think it did. You mentioned uh, the band kind of, you know, not getting along or having some issues at the time. What that surprises me because I always assumed. I mean, Kit is your brother, and Jed, you guys. I think he, I think you remained friendly. He played on some of your solo stuff. For anyone who doesn't know, oh, he's yeah, was... currently touring with Simple Minds. And uh, so, ha were you guys just not getting along anymore? No, it's they're still we're still all best friends but Good. when you've been living in each other's pockets and in each other's faces for you know for whatever that was three or four years solid and we were we were never really apart you know and mm -hmm. but what was going on kind of the subtext really was that we were getting ready to, to do the third album and everybody had been writing and on the mm -hmm. first album i was really the only writer a second mm -hmm. album the guys had two songs and then so what was going to happen by default was that i was going to have to shrink my output so there was just tension was building i seem uh, to remember having a, a meeting about it and the guys individually saying well i've got 10 songs and mm -hmm. kids saying i've got 15 songs and i was like well what is this going to be a quadruple album yeah <laughs> right but that, but that's kind of my memory of what was bugging me. But I'm sure the guys were being bugged by other things, right? Know? And it yeah. just, at one point, it kind of just came to head. And I, after a lot of years, I've sort of looked back and thought, you know, I reckon if we'd have just taken a break, we mm -hmm. could have figured it out. Yeah. But because we were in each other's faces and stuff all the time, I'm sure this happens to loads of bands. You just you don't have the patience, you know. You just yeah, don't yeah. Have the I can imagine. Yeah, I hear that a lot. You know, the the band is often compared or or calls upon Prefab Sprout and Steely Dan as big influences. Was that is that accurate? Would you say those were bands you were kind of you know listening to, sort of trying to kind of do something similar, or is that just something that music critics like to lay on top of things? Steely Dan was probably the biggest influence of my kind of teenage years because I grew up on my dad's jazz records and stuff and then landed at that teenage musician, 14 year old or whatever, right around, well, I guess it was 77 or something and punk. And I was actually in a punk band for briefly, but I was kind of craving some kind of more sophisticated harmonic mm. music and First person that mentioned Steely Dan to me was a was a teacher at school who played guitar and taught guitar, and then my dad joined one of these record clubs where you get so many records a month or something. And he said to us, "Choose a record," and I think my brother chose something like Bachman Turner Overdrive or something, mm -hmm. and I chose The Royal Scam by Steely Dan, and I just remember from the first note I was like, "That's what I've been craving," you know, really, and. Uh, it kind of, and then I went back and got the earlier albums. And then Asia was coming out around that time as well. So good. Which probably is my most influential album. Well, when that and Hunky Dory by David Bowie. Yeah, there you go. 
yeah, prefabs. But I was kind of they're more contemporaries of ours rather than kind of an influence from earlier. I loved the records, but um, we were kind of putting records out around the same time. So I wouldn't say there was much an influence. Okay. Them, but, but yeah. There was parallels between what we'd grown up listening to, and, um, you know. Got it. Okay. Um, by the way, you mentioned you mentioned Hunky Dory. I have a I have a version of Danny Wilson doing Kooks from that album. Yep. And uh, it's well, so I- good. Will you stay in the lover's story? If you stay, we won't be sorry. Cause we believe in you. Then soon you'll go so Take a chance on a couple of cooks Upon romancing Will you stay in my lover's story? If you stay, you won't be sorry Cause we believe in you Soon you'll go So take a chance with a couple of cooks Upon romancing Things to keep you warm and dry And a funny old crib On which the paint won't dry We've bought you a pair of shoes And a trumpet you can blow And a book of rules About what to say to people When they brick on you Cause if you stay with us You're gonna be pretty Okay, too Will you stay in the love I have to tell you I have redone it for modern love Oh, really? I've recut an acoustic version of it because we were with this an episode that John wrote, which is absolutely brilliant episode, and it's about uh, a gay couple adopting a kid. And at the end, he tried lots of different songs, and he just couldn't find the right mood. And it was actually my wife Alison said, "You know what would work amazingly there is Cooks," and I uh-huh. and. We were thinking about like trying to find the master of the Danny Wilson version, and then um, I said to John, uh, uh, Alison, because Alison has, has been has managed me for ages, and so she's been music supervisor on this as well. So she's mm. actually been working on it. So I said to John, um, Alison mentioned Cooks, and and John was like, mm, How does that go? You didn't know it. So mm. I I sent him over the link, and he went, This is perfect, you know. <laughs> um, ah yes. And really? I said, oh, I used to play it in my band. And he said, well, well, I don't want to use the David Bowie version. Why don't, why don't you just recut it? So I, I just got the acoustic guitar out and did a version of it. Oh, yes. So there you go. Good for you, man. Yes. Um, <laughs> so let me ask you, 1987, when that first Danny Wilson album comes out, I, I've always been curious about this. I don't know whether you would consider Danny Wilson part of that sort of sophisti-pop movement that was really big at the time, but... You know, bands like yours, bands like Deacon Blue, Swing Out Sister, Johnny Hates Jazz, Wet Wet Wet, Curiosity Killed the Cat, all of these sort of sophisti-pop bands, British bands specifically, were putting out their first albums in 1987. There's there's tons mm. more. What was it that was happening at that time? And it had to have started, I'm guessing, a year or two earlier, maybe with, the, maybe with Simply Red becoming a thing. Why were all these mm-hmm. British bands adopting that kind of sophisticated pop sound. Why was that so big at the time? Why that year? I, I can only tell you from my perspective, really, not that 
the thing that happened for me was I moved, as I said, I moved to London when I was 19 to try and get a record deal and all that stuff. Lived in a squat, had a three-piece band, and in an effort to get a record deal, we were make we were, we were trying to sound what sound like what was going on at the time, you know, mm-hmm. and whatever that was, it's hard to remember now. But the, as as you do, you're young and you're trying to get noticed, and and I, I was kind of getting increasingly unhappy. We were there for three years. And I remember the last bunch of demos that we did had, I think, at least two songs, but maybe three, that would go on to be on the first Danny Wilson album. One of them was Mary's Prayer, the other one was Davey. Another, but I can't remember. Escapes my brain at the moment. But what kind of happened was I, I got fed up trying to sound like whatever it was, Talking Heads or whatever it was going on, mm-hmm. and I, I really just went back and visited what I loved, and it, mm-hmm. and it was the, the Steely Dan's and the Bacharach and David records and and things, and and I just I was kind of disillusioned because nobody was listening to us. Nobody was there was no A and R guys coming to the shows or anything. Mm-hmm. And and so I, I went, well, look, look, nobody's going to get it when I'm trying to get a record deal. I'm just going to do what I do. And the minute I did that, everything changed. Mm. Everything changed. And the oddest thing that happened, timing-wise, which kind of relates to some of the bands that you're talking about, is that the two uh, other guys in the band, Jed, who later, who, as you mentioned, is now in Simple Minds, but he, 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 he and I did Danny Wilson together. And the drummer was a guy called Brian McDermott, who later would be in another really great Scottish band called Delamitri. Oh, and so good. He, yeah. yeah, man, so great. And anyway, they had had enough doing the squat mm-hmm. thing, and, and they basically said, we're renting a van, we're throwing all the gear in the back, and we're throwing all our clothes in the back, and we're going back to Scotland. It's up to you. Are you staying here or are you coming? And I would have just been on my own in the squat. So I was like... Okay, I'll go back to Scotland and I'll just regroup, get my head together. I had to stay with my parents for for a few months. Mm-hmm. I hated that, but but, but I I got back 
and this thing had happened with uh, Davy and Mary's Prayer, and I went in a kind of writing frenzy of just writing from the heart things that I, you know, and and, and the direction that I wanted to to work in, and. Brian left the band to join another band, not Delamitri at this point, but it was Jed and I were left on our own going, what are we going to do? Yeah. I was singing singing jingles to make ends meet, mm-hmm. and the guy who ran the, the jingle studio said, hey, you can use the studio at night if you do jingles for me for free. So mm-hmm. we started making the demos that would become Meet Danny Wilson kind of through the night in this place, just using local good musicians or local pickup mm-hmm. guys, pickup drummers and keyboard players and stuff to do a few gigs. And we asked my kid brother, Kit, to join the band at that point. He had his own thing going on mm-hmm. and started doing a few gigs. This all happened within six months of us getting back wow. from London. And the climate had just changed. There's a shift had happened and the record label guys, instead of, going around London, we're going to Dublin and to Glasgow and to Edinburgh and stuff up for the weekend and the party and go and see some bands. There's also, there was a guy who actually worked for the city council, this is true, Hmm. who used to write reviews for all the big music papers. And so he wrote for the Melody Maker, uh, Sounds, New Musical Express. Those papers were really powerful at the time. Mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. difficult to think of that now, but they were really, really powerful. And he saw us playing a gig in this little bar. It was called the Tayside Bar. It no longer exists. Really so small, like the size of a bedroom. <laughs> and we didn't know who this guy was. And he wrote this review that was just like over the top, like this is the best thing wow. to come out of Scotland in a million years. Wow. And within within a week, we had every label on the planet kind of chasing us. And, really? Um, he, yeah. And the journalist even ended up kind of slightly managing the situation because they called him because they didn't know how to get in touch with us. They're like, oh, where's your yeah. bandage done? Right. So that's ah. kind of how it happened. I honestly think that if you, and I can't speak from anybody else, but I honestly believe it's to do with time. If you think yeah. about the sophistication of the, the 70s records, the Stevie Wonder records and the Steely Dan records and these kind of things, and Yacht Rock and Michael McDonald, all that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and then you think of it being really unfashionable for about a decade. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and but, those, but the guys that are now ready to make, make records and get record deals and stuff are of the age when those records That's were really so important true. to them. Yeah. So it's it's kind of like a wave, if you think yeah. of it like that. And I think that's true of me. I was really just echoing the, the music that I loved when I was at that really seminal age, you know, yeah. 14, yeah. 15, 16, you know. Yeah, that's totally how it works. You're so right. Yeah, I just am always curious. I didn't know if, like, there was this groundswell of bands trying to be, like, Style Council or something like that, and they all just broke at once. I've always wondered why... 87 in particular was such a big year for that sound in, in England. Yeah, I think you also have to look at, and I'm trying to think who it would have probably been first, but, but it would have crept in. But, but you know, Prefab Sprout's probably a good example. Mm-hmm. Well, when Love Breaks Down being a hit, the record labels suddenly go, oh, that's the new sound. Yeah. So they yeah. start signing things that sound like that. So you, you have that part of the wave as well. You know? Yeah, yeah, I'm sure yeah. you're right. Okay, that makes sense. 
So let's talk about the end of Danny Wilson. I mean, in the, uh, you know, around what, 1989, 90, you guys call it quits. And then you go yeah. on and I, and you'll have to forgive me because from then on until Sing Street, you do so much. But it, a lot of it is very UK centric, at least to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's songs that were big on the on the UK charts or bands that put out, you know, it wasn't stuff that was necessarily crossing over the Atlantic as much. But there's mm-hmm. bands like King L and Transistor, and um, mm-hmm. I don't know, and you have a solo album called 10 Short Songs About Love, I believe, Yeah, if I've got that yeah. right. While all of these things are happening in the mid, you know, early to mid 90s, are you still feeling as if any one of these could break and you could go right back to being kind of number one again or on the top? Or are you sort of treading water? Are you sort of scratching creative urges? Where Where is your head as all of these projects are coming out? Well, I was always first and foremost an artist. So I was always mm. kind of myopic about like the next record or the record, the song that I'm working on or the track that I'm working on. And I, ne- I always had a record deal in one form or another because basically my solo deal, well, I had a, a, a year or something after Danny Wilson and then I got a solo deal and uh, that kind of melted into King L, which was my kind of, I just wanted to be in a guitar band again for yeah. a second, but that came under the same deal as, as my solo deal. And then we got dropped by Virgin. This is now heading towards the end of the 90s. Yeah. And we got dropped by Virgin and a guy who had been playing bass in King L was from California and he needed to go back. His visa was only, he had four weeks left on his visa mm. and he'd fallen in love with this English girl called Kiwi Hawks. Mm. He was a singer and he said to me, how do you fancy doing some demos for Kiwi um, write some songs with her and do because I have my home studio as well. You know, make some demos. We'll see if we can get a record deal or whatnot. And I thought, well, we've just been dropped. We're not doing anything else. So we went yeah. into the studio and started working on these tracks, which were originally supposed to be Keely Hawks demos. And um, Eric went back to the state and was playing it to a few people and was getting no response at first. And then someone played it to Chris Doridas, who I'm sure you know who he is. Mm -hmm, At -hmm. at the time, Chris had The Morning Becomes Eclectic show on on KCRW, which was a big show. I can't remember at what point we decided to give it a name, 
But I wasn't even really thinking of myself as in the band. I was thinking of myself mm. as kind of producer. I wasn't singing. Keely was singing. Um, but anyway, uh, we gave it a name. Chris started playing the demos out on Morning Becomes Eclectic. And again, we had um, a record company, Feeding Frenzy. Mm. And the weird thing was that we ended up signing back to Virgin Records for <laughs> the UK and and Europe. And that record, everybody thought it was going to be a huge record. And the single that everyone thought was going to be, was going to break, just, radio just didn't go for it. Mm. And when radio didn't go for it, there was a kind of moment of, what the hell? Complete yeah. and utter panic from the label. Yeah. We, we kind of started doing a second album, but they didn't put out any more single. Oh, actually, no, maybe that's not true. In the States, they put out maybe one more Dizzy Moon. But it was, it was kind of like, high expectations that yeah. kind of imploded right. and, and at the parallel to that i've been getting more and more people approach me to either write or produce for other records mm -hmm. and so i came back for a christmas break because most of that transistor stuff was happening in los angeles mm -hmm. and i came back for a break i only had a month or something and i did lauren christie's Breed album, mm -hmm. and we had a we had an, a hit at alternative radio in America with the song Breed. Kind of gave me the taste for not being the star, if you like, mm, not mm -hmm. being the artist. Right. And, and I really got excited about the idea of writing for and producing other artists and spending my time in the studio instead of out on the road or doing interviews yeah. and all that stuff. So that was that. Was that. And then, so I, I left Transistor. I said, I'm not coming back. And I stayed in London and started just trying to get gigs as a writer producer and it was slow at first and then i just through a friend of a friend met natalie and as manager and yeah. natalie had just had a, the biggest hit with torn and stuff you yeah know? and so she was writing for her second record and was looking for 
a collaborator, and we got together and it and it really just clicked. And I wrote most and produced most of her second album. So and good. We had a very international hit with a song called Wrong Impression. Oh, I love that, that song. Phil Thornalley that sort of brought you into the fold? No, but really, Phil, although Phil did a bit of work on that record, Phil and Natalie had worked so intensely together on the first record yeah. that Natalie was like, I want to try and work with different people. And that's, ah, that's. Okay. So, so Phil, Phil wasn't massively involved in that second record, mm. or even though he was hugely involved in the first record. Yeah, okay. And I know Phil really well. He's great. Yeah, he's such a good guy. I love him a lot. But I... I've always kind of liked Torn, but I've always really loved Wrong Impression. So I maybe I shouldn't admit that. <laughs> Phil, if you're them. listening, I'm sorry. But um, yeah, I love wrong, imp <laughs> wrong Impression. That's such a good song. I was just going to say, that was actually the last song that we wrote for that record. I, I really? remember that. Yeah. It was like, we, you know, there's, there's, there's a perspective you get when you're getting really close to the end of a record. And... You think you can play the songs back to back at that point, whereas before that, there's all different versions and there's songs that don't make it, and there's, you know, and you're kind of just chipping away, and you get to a point and you're like, we think we've got the record now, you know, and you can play the, yeah. the demos back to back, and we just felt it needed something brighter, and and Natalie had been listening to the Sundays, and she said, can you come up with something like uh -huh. the Sundays kind of vibe on the guitar, and so I came up with that guitar part, and then. Um, she, she came in and I played her the guitar part and she was like, that's, that's what I want to do, you know. And she, <laughs> the song was written really, really quickly, like wow. 20 minutes, you know. That's so, amazing um, when yeah. that happens. And I love the Sunday, so, so time, that's so I, interesting. Anyway, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. No, I'm just going to say, so by that time, I was then addicted to the process of writing and recording with other people, you know, yeah. which is kind of what I've been doing. <clears throat> Early on in this podcast, it's probably been three and a half years or so, I had Martin Brammer on here from um, the Kane Gang. And really good I, friend of mine. Yeah, he mentioned your name. In fact, I was trying to remember because I was I started, I either I reached out to you and didn't hear back or maybe I thought about it and forgot or whatever it was. But this was, like I said, three and a half years ago, I was going to reach out to you because he had, he had mentioned you in our interview as well. And because he did that too, he goes from this sophisticated pop sort of band, the Kang Gang, into becoming a professional songwriter. And he and I, were, he was explaining to me how these contracts work, and you get, you know, you make money, you get paid up front, and then if you've created a, enough um, 
value in the royalties of your songwriting over the course of the year. You re-up for another contract. I didn't know any of that. Mm -hmm. He was kind of explaining the business side to me. But um, you guys right. seem to have sort of gone down a similar path. You're even writing for similar people like Nick Carter. And um, I know you had a hit with Demi Lovato, of all people. People, you know, I don't listen yeah. to Demi Lovato, but I know she's a big deal. And she's, you know, <laughs> so that's a lot of high... Uh, visibility, I guess, for you with some of these artists. I can't take your hand and lead you to the water. I can't make you feel what you don't feel, but you know you wanna find out how to grab me. Log in, try to have me. Underneath the surface, there's so much you need to know. Yeah, some, some of it's for sure. I mean, the weirdest thing is the last two... Okay, so cut to before Sing Street. The two years before that, I had a couple of hit records that one of them wasn't released in the States at all, but it was, and it wasn't released in the UK. It was a song called Under by Alex Hepburn. She was signed to Warner Brothers in France, and I met her in LA, and we wrote this song the first day we met. Probably one of the biggest songs of my life in the sense that it was number one in about to 10 countries, you know. And then there was another song that I'd, I'd been working with a brilliant um, Swedish producer and a great friend of mine, Antur Bergesen, and he, he was developing this young artist called Kim Cesarian. And again, 
the, the record I don't think was released in the UK. It did quite good on radio in the US, actually. But mm-hmm. um, he asked me if I would help him to kind of try and find the sound and the songs and stuff with Kim. And uh, we wrote um, a song called Undressed, mm-hmm. which again was number one in a whole bunch of countries across Europe. doing that writing production thing is sometimes you can have hits and nobody knows about them <laughs> in other places you know right oh i've had hits i've had number ones in australia and nobody <laughs> nobody would know what they were here or yeah. where you are you know so yeah it's kind of a, it's interesting that's well. crazy now uh, i wanted to ask you about this i mean Martin, or, Martin, my conversation with him kind of got me thinking about this too. I mean, to become a professional sought-after songwriter like that, you have to have figured something out. I mean, have you? I, you know, people always say, if I knew how to write a hit, I would do it every single time. Well, someone is pay, someone has hired you to at least get a better batting average about that than some regular dude off the street. So what is it that, have you figured something out about what it takes to write a good song or write a, do you know something that others don't what what's the what's um, the solution here that's a really good question um i personally i'm gonna say i don't but the um i i always used to write just from instinct yeah. but i will say that when i when i and i and i sort of discovered that i was doing a lot of you know, you like you read a book about lyric writing or something like that, and you go, "Oh yeah, I do that. Oh yeah, oh I do." You know, it's there are kind of invisible rules that just by growing up listening to whatever Steely Dan or Cole yeah. Porter songs or whatever that you just they get in, you, you know, you, you instinctively know where the chorus should hit and these kind of things. But I will say that having worked in LA for because I went, I lived in LA for about twelve years the quality of writers there and Nashville as well. I'll say this, mm-hmm. that they have a very, very much more. Now, some people might say it's formulaic. I don't agree with that because you still need the, the heart or the humor or whatever it is to make a great song, but they really understand in, intellectually why a thing should say this and not that, mm. or why it will be more affecting if you leave that until the, second verse or mm. you know these kind of things that i would always work on instinct you can't help but pick these things up when you when you see it in practice you know so that uh, 
without saying there are hard and fast rules, because there are none, there are definitely ways that you can sharpen your songwriting. There's okay. no doubt about it. Do you think there's something in particular that you are especially good at that people call you for specifically? Like, you know who would be great at this is Gary Clark. Let's call Gary because he knows how to do X. Is there something like that? I'll be honest with you. I think most of and most of my work doesn't has never come through record companies for that reason. Mm. My, my work tends to come from artists and word of mouth from artists. Because I'm not only do I not work in a team, in the sense that you, it's just one on one, or if it's like in the case of say a band like the Veronicas, it's two on one, and I'm the one, you know. Uh-huh. But basically, I I think I'm very artist friendly because I used to be an artist, so I understand what they're going through, and and the, I always approach it from what does this artist need, and what does this artist need a for their career, but what do they also want to say artistically and musically. Honestly, all my work comes from artists talking to other artists, or pretty much all of it, you know. Or somebody liking a record that I've done. But I'm not a guy that goes and does A&R meetings and sort of hustles at the record company to steal the name of your podcast. Yeah, Yeah. no, that's Um, nice. Thanks. I'm I'm a really bad hustler. So that's kind of how it works for me. You're lucky then that you've kind of built a reputation of quality work and people are coming to you. You're not out there having to kind of shill or sell yourself. Um, well, no, just uh, the, the, the idea of it kind of sort of ter- terrifies and mortifies me anyway. Yeah. So it, if ever I feel like I'm in a situation that's feeling like I'm supposed to be selling myself, I I withdraw into myself. And okay. um, and so I, I keep myself out of those situations as much as I can. No, I'm not, mm. I, I'm, I will say, I actually really admire a good hustler. Mm. I don't, I'm not... I'm not slagging them up. I'm just literally saying, and 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 actually, you have to be, you know, it will stand you in really good stead if you are good at selling yourself in the music business. But I'm not, so mm-hmm. I kind of try to just let the music talk for yeah. itself, but also just the experience, you know, of yeah. working with people. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about Sing Street because this is one of the, again just the most beloved movie I've seen in the last few years. I'm constantly telling people they need to see it. I, My wife and I went, and I had never heard of it, and she thought I would like it, and so we went and saw it. And, of course, I just fell in love. And I came home, and I normally like to have physical CDs, but I couldn't wait. And so I immediately bought the soundtrack on iTunes, like, right that second. And um, I just thought it was, it's just heart. It is a music lover's passionate heart up on a screen for all to see and if you either get it or you don't and if you get it it really hits you hard how did this happen how did you even come into the you know the ra- on the radar of john carney well i slightly consider it a, a miracle because it w- i really was supposed to just write one song uh, john's as you know from the story in fact for but for anyone who hasn't seen the movie it's set in the 80s. It's actually when John was growing up. It's set at the school that he was actually at as a kid. Mm-hmm. And it's about the school band, and he was in a school band, so it was very close to John's heart. And the big the big kind of, I was going to say subplot, but actually it's it's, it's very important um, heart of the story is the relationship between Connor, who's the John character, if you like, and his big brother. Mm-hmm. And in real life, John's big brother was a big influence on his musical taste, as many big brothers are, you know, and sure. told him what records to listen to and gave him vinyls. And, and 
John says he remembers listening to um, Meet Danny Wilson, the our band's first album, like on oh, his wow. yellow sports Walkman and cycling to work, you know. And, and his idea for Sing Street was to sort of reach out to a bunch of people who fell into the category of artists who his brother had introduced him to or mm. got him into and get them all to to write a song each. And he pretty much, John was pretty clear where he needed the songs to go. The script was pretty far on by that time. And also John had started a whole bunch of ideas himself for, for songs. And so I got a call. I think they called my publisher first and then they said, John Carney wants to speak to you. So I arranged the time, talked to him on the phone and he asked if I would write a song. And, and I, I said, I'd love to do that. I've always wanted to do uh, music and film, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he sent me a bunch of briefs and bits of script and an outline of the movie. Uh, I, I loved it, all of it. But there was one particular scene that I thought, oh, I've got an idea, instantly got an idea for a song. So I, I wrote a song which was called Dream For You, and I sent it back to John. And the scene ended up being dropped from the script. So the song hit the cutting room floor. But the song, John loved it so much that he called me back and basically just said, will you come on for the whole movie? So I was like, I said, yes, wow, I'd love to, I would love to. Oh, and then great. after that, it was all it was all done really, really quickly. I mean, the music yeah. side of it was done really, really quickly. Um, so let me ask you about some of the songs specifically. Like "Drive It Like You Stole It" is my favorite track, and uh, it, it's just my kids and I listen to that song. We, we love this too. And it's obviously, um, you know, the kids in the movie are starting to listen to Maneater by Hall and & Oates, and then they go off, it influences yeah. them to go off and write this other song yeah. that shares some characteristics, but it's different. And was yeah. that the conceit that John came to you and said, look, we want to, we, I want you to kind of build something a little bit similar to Maneater, but make it your own, or what? He didn't say specifically Maneater, but what he said was, that, and it was a written brief, he said, this is a prom scene. Uh, it's imaginary American prom scene. It's actually a dream. And he said, the, the, the song's got to be just full of heart about overcoming your shit at school and whatnot. And he said, it should be influenced by Huey Lewis and the News and Hollow Notes. And I was a 
huge Hall Notes fan going back to the those early years, 15, 14, 15, 16. Yeah. And so I, the language was already in my bones, you know, yeah. and uh, the musical language. And I, I um, started to just, I was never so much of a Huey Lewis fan, but the thing where that, where that's really important was I knew that all of the, those hits for Huey Lewis mm-hmm. had punchlines, you know, they had really strong, like the, the chorus takes you to a line where it goes, boom, whatever mm-hmm. it is. I'm trying to think mm-hmm. of one off the top of my head, but that the kind power of, like of love, between I want a new drug. The power of love. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so I kind of thought I need a punchline and I just looked through my notes that, that go back years and years and years. And I found the phrase drive it like you stole it. And I can't remember where, I, where it came from or, <laughs> when I wrote it or whatever, but I was, that's the kind of punchline I need. So I knew yeah. that. So I had the title, and then I started thinking about Daryl Hall's voice, and he's one of my favorite singers of all time and put a huge too. influence on me. Mm-hmm. And so I was thinking about those, just, you know, he's got those intervals in his voice, like, you know, just catch the handle, you know, that kind of like very rhythmic. And yeah. like, so that's, that's kind of where it, where it um, came from. And wow. again, that was written pretty quickly, and I sent it to John, and John had his had his niece with him, and that's always the acid test when like a fourteen uh-huh. year old girl <laughs> hears the song. So she had the demo and um, was apparently dancing around the kitchen, just saying, yeah. "This is amazing." So yeah. John, John was fully on board at that point. <laughs> yeah, that song has the same effect in my house. I was listening to the soundtrack the other day to, you know, get ready to talk to you. And the rest of the day, all three of my kids are singing it, you know, because it's stuck in their head now. And uh, it's, it's great. Yeah. Another one from that, uh, from the soundtrack, A Beautiful Sea. Fake deals in the supermarket. TVs selling what you can get. She laughs. Nowhere is pretty as A similar kind of lift off from In Between Days by The Cure. Were you a Cure fan? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, well, I, I mean, that's absolutely my era, and I love The Cure. Yeah, yeah. The Cure were amazing because they actually managed to make unbelievably great pop records while mm-hmm. still remaining gothy and cool. You know, yeah, it's like yeah. an almost impossible task that they yep. <laughs> survived, you know. So um, true. But yeah, that was, I think that song was just originally in the in the script called Cure Song. Ah, <laughs> uh, probably, yeah. So okay. There was no, because of the, the story of Sing Street, and again, just for the benefit of people who haven't heard it, but the, uh, haven't seen it, the, the, the 
these young guys are forming a school band together and they're forming their ideas about who they are and what their music is and you know what's cool and what's not and you see them go through this journey and you actually see it in the costumes the costumes are fantastically funny yeah. as well you know they yeah. cut to another scene and and suddenly they're all you know suddenly they've ditched their duran duran look and they're mm-hmm. and they're mature you know and so these periods had to be kind of reflected in the in the songs you know and so um and it was just so much fun to do that yeah. you know if you can yeah. imagine just yeah you know. I'm not surprised. Now, Up is a really beautiful kind of a ballad off of that off of that soundtrack. Is there a song, a story behind Up? I think that came from a musical idea that John had and he'd done a demo of it and he was actually just singing kind of nonsense kind of lyrics mm. but it almost sounded to me like he was saying the word up mm. and sometimes when I was sat down to kind of refine it and to kind of like dig in and finish it as a song um, that just kept coming into my head up going up mm. and so I, I then just conceptually thought like I had to work backwards from there but yeah, yeah I love, that's, that time a beautiful lesson I love that yeah. song yeah well so what's uh, you know what now what besides the Modern Love project that you're doing with John Carney what else you know how, how does Gary Clark spend his time these days is it project by project are you doing solo um, material ever what do you do well since uh, Modern Love has been the last six months and I'm writing um, Nanny McSee the oh. musical stage musical with Emma Thompson and so we're getting back onto that literally this week so um, <laughs> so we did we did that um, with, I mean I've got about four songs to write left on that but I've written about 
20, 20 or songs or something. Okay. Um, Sing Street has gone on the stage in New York. Um, oh, wow. uh, the New York Theatre Workshop. So that's kind of going on parallel to that. We've got some workshops to do for that. Um, and I just, the band, I have developed a young band called Heights. And I co-write songs with them. Records. really the only pop stuff that I've been doing and it's been great because it's kind of eclectic and it's liberating and it's and I love the guys and so I'm quite happy with all my pop energy going into that yeah and then these other stage shows and stuff being a new adventure for me you know right and I'm, right. so I'm it's all that's all new to me I'm learning on the job yeah I mean, would you have ever guessed that in 1987, when you were opening for Simply Red, you would be where you are today, doing these kinds of projects? Would you have ever guessed that? Weirdly enough, ah. I probably would have wanted to write for film, would have wanted to write for musicals and stuff. I think if you listen to the Danny Wilson records, you could probably hear that in there right at the beginning. Mm -hmm. It's kind of influenced by a lot of those old classic American musicals and mm -hmm. um you know one of my favorite songwriters is frank lesser and you know he wrote a lot of those but the guys and dolls it was always there but i i didn't have a clue how you break into that so it's really right. a series of accidents that's enabled me to actually be doing that at this stage of my life so yeah. um i'm very very grateful to be honest no you know, and really, the main thing was that call from John Carmey, yeah. because uh, the the Nanny McPhee thing came about because they loved Sing Street. So yeah. you know, it's all it's like one thing leading to another, to another. So. Yeah, you're kind of that control. guy right now. Um, you know, <laughs> you're the hot guy that can do this kind of thing, and people want it, so they come to you. You know, it's uh, well, it's amazing. I never thought of it like that, but I'll take that. Well, you are, you are. I'll think of it like that for you. Um, so, you. okay. So tell me <laughs> to wrap up, tell me some of your, tell me a story or two that are just your favorites. They could be from back in the day. 
you know, I don't, you mentioned about being snowed in in Canada, where you, tell me a story about those days, whether it be good or bad, playing with someone you love, meeting a hero, a bad show, a good show, whatever it might be. Tell me some of those stories from back then. Oh, there's so many that my brain has gone into freeze, you know, because it, <laughs> We were talking about Delamitri earlier, uh-huh. and I did a charity show recently with um, Justin Curry from Delamitri uh-huh. and Ricky from Deacon Blue, and a girl called Karine Palmott, who's a brilliant artist, Scottish artist here. Nice. And because Brian McDermott, who was our drummer, ended up the drummer in um, Delamitri, we were kind of, it was like a songwriter in the round thing. So we were all just uh-huh. chatting and telling stories and stuff. And Justin said, I always remember that the Danny Wilson stories were always the funniest stories. <laughs> like, and now you're asking me to tell them and I can't remember any of them. So it's like, you know, I'll have to my brother. You put me on the spot. Uh, okay, well, sorry. We will have to just know that if we had heard a Danny Wilson story, they would be the funniest stories out there. According to Justin, yeah, I don't know. Okay, yeah, some okay. of them, some of them, um, are, you know, non-repeatable as well. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Okay, um, did you ever meet a hero? Is David Bowie a hero of yours? Did you, uh, or Donald Fagan, or anything like that? Yeah, David Bowie is one of the huge ones. Donald Fagan. Um, I was at one point asked to go to dinner with Donald Fagan. No way. And, um, and uh, it didn't happened but I, it was because i wasn't really enthusiastic about it because I, I was terrified uh-huh. terrified but also terrified to meet him but also terrified that i wouldn't like him if you know yeah. What I mean? oh yeah so, he's a prickly a record, guy a record company executive guy invited me to dinner with him and his wife and i wriggled out of it but i did tell i had an amazing experience with Joni mitchell once Ooh. which was quite incredible I wrote a song that was on Julia Fordham's album, Falling Forward. producer on that album was Larry Klein, who was married to Joni Mitchell at the time and produced a lot of Joni's records and continued to produce Joni's records after they divorced. Mm. And so we kept in touch and Larry was in London 
recording the big orchestral records. Remember, she made a series yeah. of these live orchestral sort of jazz versions of her own mm-hmm. songs. And my, my wife, Alison, is like the biggest Joni Mitchell fan on the planet. I'm a huge mm-hmm. fan, but she's like, you know, biggest fan. Yeah. So we went for dinner with Larry, and then we went back to his hotel room where he played us a few rough mixes. And Alison burst into tears. <laughs> and she was apologizing to Larry for busting tears. And and he said, No, don't apologize. That's like that's that's what we do this for. That's yeah. what an app's supposed to do, you know. Anyway, the next day he gave us a call and said, Do you want to go for dinner again tomorrow night? Alison was in the shower and the phone rang and it was Larry and he said, Is it okay if I bring Joni for dinner? Mm. So I said, of course it is, of course it is. I put the phone down and I shouted through the bathroom door, Joni Mitchell's coming for dinner. And I could hear that and I just lose the shit. <laughs> and, then, and then five minutes later, he called back. He said, ah, oh, she's feeling tired. She's not going to make it. I'm sorry after all. We were like, no worries. So we went for dinner with Larry. And at dinner, Larry said, do you want to come down to the studio on Friday and see one of the recordings? So we went down and Joni was absolutely lovely and she came in and said I'm so sorry I didn't make dinner the other night I was just uh-huh. exhausted she went into the recording booth and she sang um, For the Roses in one take uh-huh. with a full orchestra Frank Sinatra was a drummer and bass player in one corner and this Victor Mendoza with like a 48 piece orchestra or something, uh-huh. brass and everything Joni Mitchell was like three feet from me through the glass no. smoking a cigarette while she sang this. And she sang it in one take, and it was just one of those moments in your life that you'll just never, wow. you know, wow. forget. Oh. I'm getting a lump in my throat talking about it. Actually. I believe it. I believe so, it. That was, wow. That something else. And also, nobody records like that anymore. So to no. be able to, to see the way those records, the way those Sonata records and stuff were made, yeah, it's just exceptional. You know? Yeah. Oh, that's a great story. Well, good. You did it. You 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 nailed it with a wonderful story. That's the kind of stuff we like to hear. So <laughs> it was well, a long good. one, but you could... no, I love it. I love it. Uh, well, look, thank you, Gary, for talking with me. If you can't tell, I love so much of what you put out in this world. It means a lot to me, and um, uh, so I just you. wanted to say thank you for that. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate it. You bet. There you have it, Gary Clark. I think if you love that time period, if you were a fan of theirs, a fan of his work, a fan of Sing Street, there is a lot of fun information to be had from this conversation. I really enjoyed that. Um, I wanted to close it out with, I mentioned one of those bands that he was in, King L. This is a song off the one and only King L album. In fact, it is like impossible to find. I look it up on, on Amazon, used, it's like 80 bucks. Or something like that. This is Back to My Loving Arms. I love this tune. I gotta find this album somewhere. Maybe some of you have it. I don't even know. It's so good. Or at least it sounded good on YouTube, what I could find. Um, Anyway, thank you, Gary. Check out Sing Street. Keep an eye out for this modern love program that he's working on. So many cool things going on. Uh, Now, next week, I'm not 100% sure what I'm going to go with, to be honest. Um, I have... Uh, some timely ones that relate to, there's one that relates to a band that's current, a great indie, indie alternative band that I'm sure you know, that is currently out on tour, that I probably need to put out there. Um, I'm also holding on to a bunch that I really like that I'm excited to put out there too. So I'm not 100% sure what you're going to hear next week, but uh, hopefully it'll be a good one. 
right? Uh, anyway, you know how to find us on Facebook. You can like our page. You can send us an email at thehustlepod at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at thehustlepod. And as always, a huge thanks to my right-hand man, Yan the Man Makiewicz. Thank you, everybody. We love you. We'll talk to you next week. Taking me back to loving arms